Welcome to To Put It Playfully, the podcast that explores all things kink, sex and lingerie. I'm your host Becky, enthusiast of all things playful and sensual. Each week we bring you a new guest to join a conversation and share their unique perspective. So join us as we delve into the fascinating and thrilling world of play, pleasure and everything in between. Hi and welcome to To Put It Playfully. I'm your host Becky and today we're talking to Carolina Laskowska. Carolina is a lingerie designer specialising in crafting limited edition collections using rare materials. Dubbed a prodigy by industry experts such as Cora Harrington of The Lingerie Addict. Carolina founded her brand at just 19 years old. She's also the founder of the world's first online museum dedicated to lingerie history and design called the Underpinnings Museum. So it's an honour to be chatting to you today. I've admired your work for such a long time. It must be like a decade now. A long time. <laughs> so yeah. I just, yeah, I just wanted to ask you, start off about like the Underpinnings Museum. How did that kind of come about? So actually, you know, I have been collecting vintage lingerie for a while and it kind of really became a thing during my lingerie studies because I have a degree in lingerie design and it was during these studies you know I had a few pieces that had been gifted to me by family and friends because they knew I liked corsets and they thought I'd be interested when you know someone's grandma was uh, throwing stuff out or whatever it was during my studies that I actually started actively seeking out vintage shops and buying pieces for myself and it was largely to study them uh, to see how that could inform my own design work, to figure out how these things were put together, what's changed in contemporary design. I just found that I found these older garments so fascinating, it kind of spiralled from there. I really started collecting in earnest and, you know, built up a significant stash of gorgeous and old undergarments. It just kind of, you know, it would it would live with me and not many people would see it when friends came over who were kind of interested in the same area I get to share it with them and I used to joke you know what a dream it would be to have a museum for this stuff Mm. it was not long after that that the Victoria and Albert Museum had its undressed exhibition on the history of lingerie and I have to admit I was personally a bit disappointed by that exhibition it was a conversation later that I had with my colleague and museum team member, Laurie Smith, about, you know, all the things we wish we'd seen in the exhibition and ultimately, you know, imagine if we could do a, a museum or an exhibition. And Laurie told me about the uh, John Brightman collection, which had received lottery funding. And this is a costume designer with like a world-renowned collection of historical costume and historical dress. And he'd received funding to document this collection to share with the world as a digital museum. Now, at the time, that project had not yet launched. It had just received its funding, but it was just the idea that they were being able to do that. Why couldn't we? Mm. And it kind of spiraled from there. You know, we were talking about the possibilities. We uh, we got our photographer and team member Tiggs Rice on board. Yeah, it just went, you know, we did, we started, we did a crowdfunding campaign to raise the initial funds to kind of buy mannequins for the museum because we needed to buy some really specific shapes to suit various historical styles because the ideal body shape has changed a lot over the course of history and yeah the the crowdfunding campaign went amazingly we smashed through our goal I think in like 48 hours Um, and yeah it's uh it's all just kept going from there 
yeah that's amazing so you basically like kind of had your own archive mm-hmm. and yeah it's just like such an amazing way to sort of showcase everything there and that's really interesting about the mannequins I never would have considered that to even be something you'd have to factor in yeah I mean the, the majority of mannequins that you buy they are hard they're the ones that mm-hmm. we use are usually it's a base of plaster or paquet mache that has a fabric covering and if you think about how most underwear works it's it tends to be on a compression basis so Mm -hmm. your average bra now at least especially has stretch materials and it relies on those stretch materials to achieve its fit and that also depends on you know squishy human flesh yeah that's what it's built for so if your mannequin isn't the right shape for that you're not going to be able to squish it into shape. It needs to be kind of as close to the finished body shape as possible Mm -hmm. in order to display those garments as best as possible. Now, obviously, not every garment is going to have perfect fit. Or One of the things we've had to deal with is we kind of have to hit a level of good enough for for displaying that garment to give a rough idea of how it would have looked on the body at the time because it's just not possible or within budget to you know get a tailor-made mannequin for every single garment yeah. I mean, where would we store that for a start um, yeah. <laughs> but also just it would be phenomenally expensive because the majority of textile museums when they put the garment on display for an exhibition the dress forms will be altered and recovered and padded out specially to display each garment but that's ultimately going for a long-term exhibition so that kind mm-hmm. of investment and work can be justified we just have our photo shoot days where we're trying to get through as much as possible and kind of, yeah. you know, we run on the sales of merchandise and donations and things like that now. So it's kind of trying to get the best value for money to share as much as we can, even if it's a little bit imperfect. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really interesting. So in the museum, there's like a whole range of things, including some of our bits and pieces, <laughs> which yeah. is like makes me feel so strange that like some of our pieces are in a museum but um yeah it's amazing but I'm particularly interested in talking about crotchless briefs or overt briefs as we like to Uh call them and yeah like could you tell me a bit about the history of those and how they came to be what we know them as today yeah so I guess the kind of advent of crotchless knickers we can or like where they became truly popular would have been in the 19th century. We now think of crotchless knickers as this kind of naughty, kinky thing, you know, it's bedroom wear. But back then, crotchless, well, they were crotchless drawers, so open drawers. So they were the long, long cotton or linen knickers with just no an opening through the crotch line. That was considered the most practical and hygienic option because most women would be wearing quite heavy skirts and outerwear in the earlier half of the 20th century, uh, sorry, not the 20th, the 19th century. So if we look at, say, early Victorian, it was very, very, lots of heavy petticoats. So if you imagine the practicality of going to the toilets, you couldn't, you know, remove all of those skirts and then deal with removing closed crotch underwear the easiest thing was just to keep that all open. And even, you know, later when there was the invention of crinolines and later bustles and things like that, and fashions changed, you still had that practice.
practicality aspect. It kind of wasn't until, and obviously there were different trends in the cut of the open drawers and the embellishment and the decoration, but then it wasn't until I'd say around the 1910s, late 1910s, when fashions began to shift, that we saw the closed crotch becoming more and more popular. And part of that was, I think, down to the more streamlined approach to underwear. Mm -hmm. Corsetry never went away, but its kind of shape and function did change. So the kind of, that kind of shift in underwear, that was always practicality based. And I would say it wasn't, you know, I've, I've seen examples of crotchless erotic underwear in the 20s that were made by very exclusive fetish wear brands. So uh, you can see examples, I think, from like Diana Slip and Eva Richards. Yeah. And then in the 40s, you can kind of see as gag gifts, you've got the crotchless underwear or with the zips, uh, you know, the 1940s souvenir underwear that we have, I think influenced one of the sets that you guys did. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that was so much necessarily intended to be worn as more of a joke between sweethearts mm -hmm. but then we see in the 50s kind of the I guess the advent of the burlesque aesthetic as we know it and that kind of trend in stripping and things that you had companies like Fredericks of Hollywood and Covergirl Originals who would sell crotchless underwear as an erotic garment yeah, yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. I think yeah, it's kind of weird how it's done that sort of 180. Now they'd be considered like not practical at all. Yeah. But yeah, I'd kind of like to see the return of that as like a practical <laughs> option for going to the loo. Like if you're wearing like a tight dress or something, it is actually, that would actually be quite useful. I mean, I, th I think like now it would arguably be I mean, obviously it's going to depend from person to person, but I know mm -hmm. enough people would rather just go commando now. And that's yeah, a that's little so bit true. less shocking and scandalous than it used to be. Yeah, it is. That's so true. Like with the sort of like people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you know that Playful Promises have over 85 bra sizes up to a UK H or a USK in loads of different styles? Whether you are looking for sexy styles to everyday support, we've got you covered. And we don't just have bras, we have sex toys, swimwear, nightwear, accessories and more. Check our website at playfulpromises.com to see all the latest drops and offers. Really against the whole like VPL thing now. I don't mind it. <laughs> I'm like, show off your underwear. <laughs> And so how is that any in any way related to like cupless or quarter cup bras? Like what's the transition for that? I mean, I I, I don't think the, the two garments are related, but it is a similar mm. story in that they started out as a practical garment and made that transition into eroticism. The earliest that I've personally seen cupless bras kind of advertised was in the 1920s. I recall seeing an advertisement for that kind of sling style, which is yeah. what I'll refer to as coupless. It kind of goes up to just below the nipple and has the strapping above the bust. I saw that advertised as a nursing bra in the 1920s, but I don't think that ever caught on. I imagine that wouldn't have been, you know, although you have the practical easy access, it's not going to mm -hmm. be great for things like leaking and, you know, other practical considerations. But it definitely caught on as a style in the 1930s, where the kind of idealised body shape was, you know, natural, but you still wanted that lift to the bust line. Right. So we do have a few pieces in our collection from the 30s 
with that kind of silhouette. And I've seen them for sale both from European brands and from American brands. So yeah, that was very interesting to see. And that kind of shape continued in the 50s and the 60s. Marilyn Monroe was famous, she famously wore these to get that really iconic pointed bust line under her sweaters and things like that. One of her sling bras was at auction not long ago. I, I don't recall for how much it sold, but it was a lot. I think it would have been around the 50s and 60s that although this style was still worn for practical purposes, mm-hmm. various companies did cotton on to this is an erotic option as well. So within our collection, we actually we have a catalogue from CoverGirl Originals, which does advertise cutless bras as an option for glamour models, strippers, things like that. And uh, Fredericks of Hollywood, again, another very famous kind of boudoir brand. Uh, mm-hmm. They also advertised cutless bras as bedroom wear and erotic wear rather than you know how to get the perfect pointy bust for your sweaters yeah so I I always thought that the sort of pointy bust thing was where the bullet bra came from but do you think is that like any any way Mm -hmm. connected do you think I mean they they were both kind of engineered to give a similar appearance Mm -hmm. I think it just came down to your personal preference what kind of style you wanted to wear I imagine the sling cup was perhaps the option for someone who had a shape that was quite close to the fashionable ideal at the time, whereas a lot of bullet bras may have used foam padding, for example, to hold that shape in place for someone who didn't necessarily have a natural bust line to fill it out. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you so much for talking about that. How, like, you mentioned a little bit about burlesque sets and, like, strippers. Like, has that changed in any way um, Mm -hmm. over the years? So I I can't necessarily speak with much authority about the Mm -hmm. contemporary scene because it's not something I've studied in particular detail. But I do know that a lot of kind of burlesque wear in say the 50s and 60s and arguably still to this day particularly for uh, strippers working in clubs and things the clothing choices were influenced by the local laws of what was allowed so i know if we look at the united states for example different states have different allowances on the level of nudity that is allowed in a public space even say within the context of a club so a lot of the styles would kind of be ways to get around that to cover the bare minimum of flesh and be legal Mm -hmm. so this is where kind of the g-string came about within certain american states for example it was deemed that this was the area that had to be covered so that style was a solution to that you know the front was covered and the back could have you know the skimpiest of strings but yeah it, it varies from state to state i believe that hasn't necessarily changed the main difference i think now is that Burlesque dancers, for example, have maybe more freedom of choice and there's a lot more kind of creativity and options because of the revival of neo-burlesque. There's a lot more choice aesthetically and a lot more creativity in terms of underwear design generally, that they're not necessarily shopping from the same level of, you know, mail order catalogues that are all kept under the table kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I guess now, like, everything we've, like, what you kind of would say is like club strippers now it's like it's very stringy and it's like a transition from that um g-string like it's kind of got more strappy (laughs) yeah I mean again I think it's going to depend on say where you're working the clientele your personal preferences I think Mm. in some ways that 
there can be more freedom there. And there is certainly more choice on the market about what to wear. Yeah. I do know that, for example, in more early burlesque uh, history, I, a lot of performers made their own costumes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I guess certainly it's a lot similar. of performers still do yeah. that now, but mm-hmm. they don't have to. There is more choice yeah. out there. Yeah, there's so many like amazing designers making such intricate things or sparkly things. Yeah, there's definitely a lot, lot more options. Mm-hmm. Um, and how about for you and your designing at the moment? Is there anything that you're like a passion project or anything like that? I'm kind of in quite a fortunate position that a lot of my income comes from a website called Patreon, mm-hmm. where I kind of, I, I document my projects, I share behind the scenes and that kind of thing. And that allows me to work on a lot of stuff that is, you know, has no commercial viability whatsoever. Yeah. So that's a really fortunate position to be in to not have to constantly think about costings, what's going to sell. I just make what I want. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of passion projects. I, uh, at the moment, I'm working on what is a couture collection inspired by the rosy maple moth, which is a type of moth that is, it's very fluffy and it's bright pink and yellow. It looks like a rhubarb and custard sweet. And I know, I know that it's the kind of colour palette that people either love or hate. Mm -hmm. It's very, very polarising. This collection is never going to go on sale. So I can just do what I want. So I have been playing you know, really, it's just a lot of fun making something utterly ridiculous, no commercial viability. <laughs> it doesn't have, it's just, you know, it exists for the joy of it. Yeah, I love stuff like that. Just something that's just so out there and crazy. <laughs> it's like you would never wear it, but it's just not really the point of it. It's just like, I love that. And oh. yeah, especially anything inspired by bugs. Or like insects, I kind of think it's really cool. <laughs> I kind of missed the peak of it, but the 2000s and early 2010s, I think, was a period of just incredible creativity and risk taking mm. within the lingerie industry. And there were so many brands who were doing stuff that was just, you know, absolutely ridiculous, absolutely impractical, but so, so beautiful. And there was that real showcase of craftsmanship, there was that risk taking that you don't really see anymore. And, you know, I don't blame especially a lot of independent designers for not, for not taking those risks anymore because it's, re- it's a really difficult industry to make it in. You know, yeah. uh, lingerie has some of the lowest profit margins out of any sector in fashion. So there's just so much pressure on top of that. You're dealing with, you know, fast fashion culture and the general devaluation of clothing. Mm-hmm. But I would really love to see that kind of spirit of, lingerie design that we had in the 2000s you know brands like strumpet and pink who i i adore what they did these absolutely ridiculous incredibly expensive knickers that were just works of art you know with with these most incredible textiles hand beading these handmade silk flowers you know all of these silk covered buttons just incredible detailing so beautiful so impractical i am happy they exist but we don't see stuff like that so much anymore and that's yeah. sad yeah. yeah it is really sad I yeah I know exactly what you're talking about and I feel the same with just fashion in general has become a lot more I guess practical and yeah wearable because I think we're so used to like being able to like have a new outfit every month or like mm. stuff like that and yeah it's not like oh that sort of keepsake element to things you buy anymore which is a real shame 
but yeah, yeah I, I, I love that that's, that's what you're doing <laughs> I will say from like my perspective of studying historical fashion it's really really fascinating to see that kind of shift from garments that you will keep for many many generations mm -hmm. and now so much stuff is just designed to fall apart and throw away and even yeah. that's not just you know kind of the cheap fast fashion stuff I see that even in the luxury sector you know mm -hmm. as um what's the phrase for it if it, it's, it's designed to fall apart because mm -hmm. that's what will keep certain companies going they want people to come back and buy more and yeah. they're not going to keep buying more if what they buy lasts and yeah. you know I think that's a really sad thing that's happened to a lot of the culture related to clothing and I hope that it changes you know there's signs that it's going to shift because fast fashion is unsustainable but we will see yeah I think people are a little bit more cottoned on to these kind of things now and see it's not even just fashion it's like technology as well like we all know that like Absolutely, if you have yeah. an iPhone it's going to eventually like make itself like unusable I mean it's very funny I was actually discussing this with my friend this morning how Apple I believe they were sued in France for the fact that you know iPhone updates slow the phone down gradually mm -hmm. and this was deemed illegal in France so yeah. Apple can no longer slow down devices in France with updates this has led to a number of people changing their phone region to France so it continued running at the same speed oh, even when it's an older model that's interesting but that sh that should mm. surely be illegal everywhere <laughs> it is not and yeah. one thing I've also found very interesting within Europe is this, like, actual governments taking legal moves to the right of repair, that mm -hmm. more and more company technology companies have to allow their products to be repaired. They have to be repairable. They can yeah. no longer be designed as a purely throwaway object. So yeah. it's it's good to see that shift gradually happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I th I th like I really hope people get more used to the idea of like repairing their clothes and lingerie as well. And like there seems to be like a bit more like accessibility now. If like if you want to find out how to do that, you can do that quite easily. But yeah, I hope actually people yeah. like make a habit of it. I think I do think that it's it's a strange situation where. You know, a lot of basic sewing skills, they used to be taught to everyone from mm -hmm. a young age. It was just one of these practical skills everyone has, but that's fallen out in the last few decades. And now for a lot of people, it is a very inaccessible skill. They don't yeah. have the knowledge base, they don't have the equipment, but at the same time, time you know this age of information we have youtube we have you know i can think of so many tiktokers who are sharing how to sew mm -hmm. so if you want to learn there is this wealth of free information out there it's just it's not kind of baked into the culture anymore so it's something yeah. you have to actively seek out and learn and not everyone necessarily has the time or money for that yeah um, and there's also that really sad situation of some stuff cannot be repaired. I've noticed increasingly mm. with clothing, some stuff is made so that the fabric literally falls apart. You can't, if the fibres are disintegrating, you can't sew it back together. Yeah. It just is impossible. So yeah, there is that shift as well, away. certain companies are making sure that their clothing can't be repaired or can't be altered. Yeah. It's, it's so strange, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, but I definitely think time is like a massive thing as well, because I could spend like, you know, like maybe an hour or two fixing something or I could just order a new one. 
and then it'll be with me tomorrow so obviously you can't do that with like vintage clothes and things like that but yeah I I feel like I have a pile of like things constantly the things like things to fix or alter and it just never goes down (laughs) I'm like one day I'll get to you but I never do I am a garment making professional and I am very quick at sewing and I also have that pile and it doesn't get attended to for months at a time. (laughs) I'm like actually going to make like a pledge to myself now, like I'm going to do at least one thing this weekend (laughs) and then I'll be happy. Just like one, one thing from the pile. But yeah, it's just, yeah, it's it's out of hand. (laughs) Thank you so much for like, all your expertise and lingerie knowledge yeah is there anything like you want to plug what's going on at the underpinnings museum oh my goodness I, I should have thought about <laughs> this before um no I just you know if you haven't heard of us I really recommend visiting the site you know it's completely free access we have hundreds and hundreds of historical garments documents everything that's completely free we also have a big archive of digital exhibitions, which are all completely accessed. That's a big part of our kind of mission is making this information as accessible as possible, regardless of your financial status, regardless of your location. We do have digital store, which sells things like garment patterns taken from some of our historical garments. And we're gradually working on grading those into different sizes. So I recommend checking both the site and checking the store because there's new stuff coming out all the time. Yeah. And what's the um, URL? It's museum.com. Okay, cool. And what's the Patreon link as well? Oh, yeah. So that's patreon.com for the Underpinnings Museum. It's just slash Underpinnings Museum. And all of those funds go to directly to support museum coven running costs and things like that. And my own Patreon is patreon.com slash Carolina Laskowska, one word. Amazing. Yeah. And I I must like, for anyone listening who hasn't seen Carolina's work, like I just, you absolutely just need to like go on Google now and just have a look because I like absolutely, you'll like fall in love with something. And I can't wait to see this moth design. I was so excited about that because I love like pink and yellow together so much. Okay. Thank you so much again for your time and everything. Thank you so much for having me. It was so lovely to speak to you. You're so welcome. And you. I'm excited for more people to hear about the museum. Yes, they will. (laughs) We'll make sure of it. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much. Speak soon. Thank you for listening to To Put It Playfully. If you want to follow us on social media, find us at Playful Promises. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button to learn about our new podcast episodes. See you then.